0: Now, you know what time it is. It's Showtime Boiling NZ, New Zealand's basketball podcast, speaking to hoopers, coaches, or anyone influential to growing the game of basketball here in Aotearoa. Their story, their way. Let's get it. This is a part of our coaching collective. We went one on one with incoming head coach for Taylor Bay Hawks for 2022. It is Australian McDowner. Now, McDowner's journey and story through the game of basketball as a player and as a coach is super intriguing. I guarantee you're going to enjoy it because it goes through all the hustle and grind, just those little things that will pretty much take you to the next step and next level if you want to push hard for your dreams and aspirations. Mick is also a part of the Next Play Solutions and where he does break down micro skills within the game and just shares the knowledge of the wealth that he has within his mind of basketball. Yo, <laughs> yo! Without further ado, let's go! Our podcast is proudly sponsored and brought to you by the hydration team over at r-line r-line has been scientifically developed at a leading new zealand university for active people and athletes of all ages the easy to mix concentrate contains just what you need to hydrate and recover from exercise and hard work and oh it tastes so good r-line is designed to promote the availability of energy and to prevent or treat mild dehydration that may occur as a result of strenuous exercise. For more information, check them out on social media and also on ourline.co.nz. Get yours today. Kia ora koutou welcome to the show, Showtime Balling, Balling on Levels, New Zealand's basketball podcast. Uh, we're really reeling in the podcast episodes at the moment. We can classify this as a part of our coaching collective. We have a coach who's very knowledgeable. Uh, we're so happy that he's making his way up to Hawks Bay. Next year, well, sooner, sooner rather than later. Uh, McDown, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem. Again, like I said before, uh, I know the South Final would love to keep you, but we're
1: happy to have you come up this way to um, the Sunny Hawks Bay. Yeah, look, being from um, Queensland originally and uh, a slightly warmer temperature, I know my, my family's quite happy uh, about. Um, yeah coming coming up north and in, enjoying some of that uh that summer i've been told it's a beautiful place to live by many people um we're definitely sad though we're sad to leave the uh the canterbury region i think the last three years we've met some just amazing people passionate basketball people and and people in the community so that's that's always uh you know a, a tough one but hopefully we've made some friends for life here in canterbury and uh you know the basketball world is a small world so we'll continue to to stay in touch, but excited, excited to be to be up there in the bay soon.
0: Yeah, well absolutely. The you know, the basketball always connects someone somewhere around the world and with technology nowadays. People are only a FaceTime away. So no, definitely. And um obviously, you know, nothing but awesome uh feedback about what you and your wife done, um around the world or around obviously New Zealand. Cool. Okay. Is massive, but we've got to rewind it back um, to talk to our audience around where it started for you in terms of your basketball for passion.
1: Where it was it? Um, so I had, there was an American import that came to our primary school and uh, just at lunchtime one day, and I just, he seemed like he was, you know, just a giant, you know, seven foot six or something like that. But uh, I met him when I was an adult, and uh, he uh, he wasn't that big. But um, yeah, his name was Audie Matthews, and was a was a player in the NBL. And you know, he would go out to schools and do, do his clinics. And I just remember how this tiny, tiny little car and this big human being got out of it, and um, we just did this basketball clinic at lunchtime. And you know, the guys that I played soccer and cricket and athletics and all that stuff with, we just had a great a ball and. One of the parents um, asked if we wanted to try and play on the weekend, and that's sort of where it went. So I just started to play basketball as a primary school kid and uh, kept going, but it was always behind. I was a cricket and um, soccer player first and foremost, and it wasn't really until um, later in high school that I really committed to playing basketball, and it you know just kind of opened up doors from there. And ever since I've been involved some way shape or form as a player administrator um coach um yeah you know I love love the game i've been blessed to travel all over the world as uh, in all different roles and, and seen a lot seen a lot of different cultures um and it's just fascinating you know like the game is a beautiful game whether you're you know in in an asian country in a lower population area that you know kids are just playing out outside um you know on hoops or whether you're back back here in Ataroa and, you know, same thing. Kids are outside running around playing playing basketball on a hoop. So the game's the game and it's it's connected people from all around the world and it's, it's something that I love and been really blessed, really blessed with to uh, to do. So I just, I really appreciate that big, big human being jumping out of his car and doing a clinic uh, way back when.
0: Well, it's funny, you know, how the game, you know, how it attracts people into and it's obviously attracted you all the way up to now. Um, your journey of basketball is definitely, Gone up, you know, in swerves, lefts and rights, in regards to from being a player and terms of tra- transitioning into a coach, um, because um, yeah, that's there that must have been a big massive shift for you. And when was that for you? So it,
1: um, yeah, my playing career is, career is not illustrious by any stretch. Um, <laughs> I missed a lot of the the junior you know, like representative teams that I played for my school. Um, I had a lot of fun at, at the school level. Like I was captain of the basketball program there for a few years and some of the mates I have now are mates I played basketball with then. Um, I uh, trained with the Brisbane Bullets. The Brisbane Bullets had like a, a really kicking academy in, in in the mid-90s and so I was a part of that. Um and got to train with the Brisbane Bullets a little bit in the preseason of one of their years, and then I headed over to the States to a small NAIA school and played. But I uh, loved the school, loved the experience and the environment, being a, an Aussie in um, a tiny little town up in Maine at school, but I pretty much spent the whole year injured. So when I got back to Australia as a 20- 20 or 21-year-old, I'd always kind of done coaching. Like when I was at school, I, you know, the seniors, we helped the primary school team out, and when I got back... Uh, someone I knew was like, "Can you come down and help with my rep rep team?" And um, I just started as because I, you know, liked it, so I helped out as an assistant, and then I, that kind of leapfrogged me into coaching rep basketball um, well before I was ready to do it. Um, getting involved with club basketball, I was still playing. I was chasing the dream still, but um, I had several people tap me on the shoulder and said, "Hey, you'd probably make a good coach." That was their polite version of saying, "You know, <laughs> you're not going to, you're not good enough to make it as a player." So. Um, as a uh, guy in my early 20s, I ended up being the assistant coach of what's now – I think the NBL One is the way it's been branded. It's been called a lot of different things. But, um, yeah, we had a, a, a the Brisbane Bullets assistant coach at the time, coach uh, the local club I was at, and he wanted to kind of mentor a younger coach. So that was tough. My first four or five years in that space, I was in my early 20s, and, you know, I was coaching – you know, guys in their late 20s, early 30s, club legends that have played two, 300 games, guys that had played in the NBL like, and had illustrious careers. So to me, that was, um, that was challenging and uncomfortable. Uh, it was like an apprenticeship, but it was the best thing to happen for me because it kept me grounded. And while I was doing that with the seniors, I was coaching six, seven days a week, um, whether it was individuals, um, coaching at schools, primary schools, uh, helped set up a club, um, that's still running today, which is is really cool, the Belmont Saints. So I was just fully immersed in basketball at all levels. And when I got to my mid-20s, uh, I thought I hit the jackpot because I got my first full-time basketball job, you know, big fat office over with a great view and a car and thought everything was great. I worked for the Queensland Academy of Sport when I was 25 years old as, as the head coach up in Townsville. And um, that was probably the start of my first, you know, full-time professional coaching career. And it's, you know, that's Getting on 20 years ago now. So um, there's been lots of ups and downs through that period of time, but I've been blessed to be an employed basketball coach for uh, the majority of it.
0: Yeah. So, like, you got, you know, you got tapped on the shoulder and say, hey, look, the polite way of saying, hey, mate, uh, <laughs> come do the coaching. Mate. Yeah.
1: You can't <laughs> guard anyone. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> so um, my next question probably is, because um, we're going to probably dive into this a little bit, uh, is the coaching philosophy from back then, because that's, that's something that always changes pretty much within any environments you've been a part of or when you start, because the awareness of what you're coaching was back then to now must have totally changed.
1: Absolutely. I mean, like most... Um, young uh, brazen confident people I thought I knew it all as soon as I got a a taste of it um, in my early 20s I just you know I think I had a great connection I think people do that you know if you're a a male or female um, coach in their early 20s and you're coaching teenagers I just think because that generation gap's not you're almost like an older brother or older sister and um you know I came back from the states with uh the baggy Paco jeans and Timberland shoes and you
0: know
1: no. um I, I was that was the era you know <laughs> the greatest era of hip hop music in the 90s um but yep. I um I connected well with um the the teenagers but I guess I didn't know any better I just did what I had been taught myself and so you know that that era of coaching and a lot of people just don't see it now because I think the persona that I have on the the sideline now in the NBL is a lot more calm and collective and I think a lot of peers will say I'm a bit more of a you know I think my way through the game and not overly emotional Um, when I was younger I was just out of control like um, intense and yelled and I got in trouble um, you know for for pushing the boundaries too too hard and so I guess my philosophy back then um, I didn't know myself that well as a person and as a coach it was really just Cut and paste, cut and paste, just, just do whatever, you know, run the same offenses that, you know, I'd either played under because I felt comfortable um, and uh, and just did whatever I thought was the right thing on defense at the time and just coached with a lot of energy and passion. But once I started to do courses, you know, the level one and the level two coaching course and, you know, you start to get encouraged to apply for different things. So, um, you know, coaching a, a state, state basketball team is a pretty – pretty big big deal in um in in Australia so I started to get involved in that at at quite a quite a young age and I guess as you accumulate knowledge when you're still quite young you probably feel like you're you know on the cutting edge and you know the latest and greatest stuff and you you know you hold the the set of cards that no one else has and Mm -hmm. um you know that confidence can really help you and that belief can help you but I think what you realize over time is you know the more you know actually the less you know and there's a, a bunch of kind of uncomfortable light bulb moments or wow moments where, um, you know, whether it was at a, a national camp in, in, in Canberra, um, which I, I had a scholarship for to go down to and, you know, kind of thought I, I knew a lot. And then there's just things being taught that just go straight over your head. And, and, you know, you don't show that outwardly, but inwardly you go, oh, my God, like, you know, and it kind of does bring you back to earth. So I feel... To generalize that stage in my my journey, I, I felt like I thought I knew a lot and I was reading everything and re- you know reading books about leadership and culture and watching back then it was I think vHss or dVDs but <laughs> you know like everything that there was available I was a sponge for, and but I thought just because I read that I knew I knew it you know I was an expert because I read it um, and then you know reality sets in and unfortunately that's the can be the cruel the cruel um uh, I guess part of your path is you know, you get put in situations where you're out of your depth and I think over time, you know, you mature and you and you realise that, yeah, you you're not the smartest person in the room all the time and that's okay. And I guess then you transition once I started to get into the professional game, you do start to realise that you're working with, you know, people that are experts in the area, whether it's a strength coach that's, you know, done done his exercise science degree and a whole bunch of other accreditations or it's the CEO that's, um you know, you're highly qualified, and maybe got their MBA or something like that. But you know, you start to work with a lot of different professionals, and then it becomes more about bringing your expertise to the table um, with a broader group of professionals, and then trying to make these shared decisions that help help athletes. So um, it's been fascinating. But yeah, I have been in a, in a lot of different, um, I guess, environments, and I think that's the lucky thing that helps shapes. You know, what you and galvanizes what you believe as a coach and what your philosophy um, will be. And it will continue to evolve. There, there's no doubt about that. But um, I feel quite comfortable with, with where I see the game and the way I believe the game's um, a good way to be played.
0: Yeah, look, um, resources were thin and far ahead back in the day. But um, I remember those Timberland days and um, they're still like, <laughs> the fashion <one> nowadays.
1: <laughs> fashion recycles, right? I just wish I held on to them because maybe in five years' time they might be trendy again. But, you know. <laughs> who knows, they still are but um yeah no it's great to hear that you um you
0: identified there was you know because there's a lot of life lessons put in part within the coaching fraternity and in the journey um back then what was um what was more important to you i know like it might be different if you play developments quite high for your team but premium on winning was it all about winning or did you figure it out early because a lot of coaches when they're starting they believe that success is getting the championships, getting the wins, uh, putting that together. Um, When did you figure that out for you?
1: No, look, I think, I mean, winning, and and this is probably a a big myth, winning is an important lesson in life. And, um, you know, I'm a competitive person and I do want to win, um, but not at the expense of someone's experience in the program. So, you know, I'm not a win at all costs and, you know, Cut corners and try and do do whatever, but I'll try and find within the rules of the game and, and within what's I think you know ethically right every possible competitive advantage I I, I can to help our team, and, and that may be um, coaching a player with their footwork and, and how to improve their their footwork. It could be you know help developing um, you know emotional. Uh, uh, I guess stability or resolve, like something that's along the lines of mental skills or performance psychology. So, yeah, I guess there's there's lots of different um, there's different aspects to the game for you know an individual and a team to be successful. But winning's always been there, and I think it's also um, unfortunately it's a way of the world where it's been rewarded. Like if you're successful then people want to back you as a winner and you know as if you're a coach that's coaching a high school team or a junior rep team and you win um you know to the to the armchair expert or the average average joe you're you know you're a great coach but um you know i think i'm old enough and wise enough now to understand that there's you know there's coaches that may just not have the talent um you know for um you know Back in Australia, Victoria is quite quite a dominant junior and senior um, basketball state just because of the sheer population. Uh, it would be a surprise with all of those tools at your disposal that you're not and the depth of players that you don't have um, a fairly successful campaign when you go away to a national tournament because just to even become the head coach, you've got to go through quite a lengthy process. So... Just because of the sheer numbers that you're up against, and maybe it's similar. I don't know in um, the bigger associations here versus if you're in a smaller, uh, a smaller remote association. But who's to say that the the coach that coaches uh, the Northern Territory, if it's back in Australia or a small small little area um, here in New Zealand, that goes away, um, you know, doesn't do an amazing job? They may not get the results because they just don't have the the horses to compete, Mm -hmm. you know, against the top programs, but I think that comes back down to what the institution or the organization, um, if they lead that space or whether if you're as a coach, you know, have that autonomy to go, well, what is success? You know, how do we define success? Um, is it the athlete experience? How do you measure growth? Like there's so many different ways to look at, you know, what is coaching? What is good coaching?
0: Yeah, exactly. You just, well, we just I touched on that on the podcast earlier. Um What the success and obviously for coaches to lean back on that, if there is a um, if there is like guidelines within the association to say, hey, look, you know, winning's not everything for us, or winning at all costs, you need to do it, (laughs) you know. So it's it's their background, their backing.
1: It's still it's still there now. Um, I recently went to a prize giving of one of the local clubs, and they do an amazing job. And um, we we sat down. I was just did a little talk to the to the group at the start, and then they started to invite, you know, started with the younger age group all the way up to the senior program. And so the coaches came up and um, kind of wrapped up their season. But the first coach got up and, you know, pretty much the narrative was, you know, we won X amount of games. We only lost these games. We made the final and, um, you know, we had a great season. And, you know, this this young person who got, the, I think, you know, they handed out like an M- uh, MVP award and a most improved or coach's award or something like that. But um, the first coach, got up on stage and spoke that way and so then the next coach came up for their team and it was the same thing um, and I felt like as the coaches got up the teams that you know maybe they they just struggled they didn't win many games or they were a 500 team or something that straight away it was a bit oh you know we had some injuries this year or we went, we <laughs> you know and I've used that for sure <laughs> yeah. that, uh, in, in the recent season I've just coached but um, what I said to the um, – it was a great vibe, like the feeling in the room. It was, you know, end of year and they're handing out prizes and that and family were there. Like it was a really cool vibe in the room. But I just said to the, um, the director, I was like, oh, there seems to be a strong, strong precedent set on um, on winning. I wonder if this next coach is going to be talking about the win-loss record. And fair, You know, the coach got up and almost verbatim. <laughs> <laughs> said that and the, the lady that runs the club kind of turned to me going oh that's right and so anyway we had had a good chat about it and all the stuff about how you define success and you know what is a good coach and um and i think ended up writing a blog for their, their next newsletter so the so the club actually was proactive with uh you know trying to i guess not put volunteer coaches in particular under a lot of pressure to feel like they have to win and they're a failure if they don't win um that doesn't mean you don't you, you know losing games isn't fun but you know, that you shouldn't, you know, set um, or define your su- su- season just whether or not you're, uh, you've are you won the under-13 girls B-grade, you know, local club competition.
0: Mm. Mm. Absolutely. All right, Coach. Now let's talk about when you got into professional coaching. Um, now moving into AMBL uh, and obviously with the Boomers as well. Where was it for you?
1: Um, so I volunteered. I pushed shot clocks and... Um, Swept floors and worked out younger guys and um, all that, and uh, watched video. Um, transferred VHS to DVD scouts for the Brisbane Bullets when I was in my uh, mid 20s. Uh, and then when we moved up to North Queensland, I did some volunteer work with the Townsville Crocs, and then same thing with Cairns Taipans. And it was probably the Cairns Taipans that was the first, uh, you know, real closer link. What was going on, and that was under Aaron Fern. Aaron Fern was the creator of the Cairns Taipans Academy. That's had some amazing, you know, players come through that. Aaron Baines, Nathan Jayy, just to mention uh, a couple. But um, I kind of cut my teeth just volunteering around the fringes of an NBL team. You know, I think we had six fifteen AM starts. We went four days a week, uh, and that was on top of being the general manager of Cairns Basketball and the coaching director. And um, so I was a pretty pretty busy guy. Um, but that. That was the start of it, and then I took a job in Perth as the Basketball Western Australia High Performance Manager. And uh, uh, Mel hooked my wife. Um, at the time we were, I think we were engaged. I better better get that right. Um, but anyway, we we headed over there. It was a huge change to go from the east coast of Australia all the way over to Perth. It felt like another another country, but amazing place, beautiful place to live. Um, great great role. And uh, a year into the job, uh, I was helping. Um, the assistant coach uh, by the name of Connor Henry, um, helping him with his preparation for um, interviewing for the head coaching role, job for the Wildcats. And uh, while over a at coffee, um, as we were just having a chat about, you know, all the bits and pieces around his philosophy and how to put together all the training plan and recruitment plan and all these these documents and bits and pieces, he said, oh, look, you know, do you want your name on the list? I'd love you to be on board. And long story short, I was the Perth Wildcats assistant coach. Um the following week and that was the 2008-09 season was my first season um, unfortunately Connor um, was let go after one year so um, that was horrible at the time after doing a fantastic job and getting great feedback from the club um, at the end of the day it's the head coach his choice and uh, Funnily enough, small world, Bevo, and we're good mates, Bevo and I. But he, uh, he came in as the as the new head coach of the Wildcats, and he he went in a different direction with the assistant coach at the time, which we have a bit of a laugh about now. But um, that meant I was out of a job after I actually had, you know, had years left on a contract. I thought I was uh, I was doing great, and uh, I was lucky to get picked up by Cairns again. And I think a lot of that was to do with the relationship I'd formed with Aaron Fern, but the work I'd done on the floor, and and that he he knew. You know, I was a hard worker and, and, and I guess had some talent there and I could help him be successful when the Cairns Taipans um, became a community club and, and had to to grow from ground up. So, yeah, I guess that's the thing. Spent six years with, with the Taipans under Fernie and two grand final losses, unfortunately, against the mighty New Zealand Breakers, um, their first championship. But, um, yeah, that was sort of the... I guess, the big big chunk of time I spent in the NBL and then more recently with, with Andre Lamanis at the Brisbane Bullets, the same thing again. We, we started from scratch after the club had been out of the league for seven or eight years. And so coming back from the Olympic Games in Rio, um, CJ Bruden, who I believe is well-known here in uh, New Zealand, is a legend. Absolutely. Um, so CJ was the face of the Brisbane Bullets. Uh, holding down the fortway, Dre and I were away in Rio with the Olympic team. So we missed all of the preseason. CJ had to do it all. And then we got back about a month before the season started or three weeks and away you go. And uh that was a real challenge to try and try and do that. But it was an awesome time to be back in Brisbane. We'd spent twelve years away from Brisbane to go to go back and be with our our family and be back at the club that as a kid I um I followed them as a as a little kid and and was a part of it as a young fella. So that was sort of my journey in the NBL the, the ten or so years I guess as a paid coach and another five as a as a volunteer um is the time I spent there.
0: Oh, absolutely. Like, man, people do not understand the struggle of actually trying to convert VHS to DVD, man. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's some high-tech stuff. Well, to do that, to volunteer try and get your gig. Like, um, we hear these sort of stories all the time in regards to people just trying to, you know, trying to push the, the limits or boundaries with whatever little resource they have just to kind of get their
1: nose in the in the door. Abs absolutely, like the when we were at the Perth Wildcats we had Connor Henry who was a rookie head coach myself and another gentleman by the name of Mark Radford who's on the um, Tasmanian Jack Jumpers staff mm-hmm. and um, I'd, I'd been using um, uh, some video technology like the the latest and greatest stuff that w- that was out um, with some of the national junior stuff so I was reasonably savvy by that stage with um, the video technology stuff but these two guys had never done it so we uh, even though it was the mighty Perth Wildcats that had been to by that stage, you know, twenty odd playoffs in a row and, and all that stuff. We went back to like a really really basic I think, um, product that over the shelf that you could get. Um, that in hindsight took a lot longer than that one what needed to be, but it was just easy for those guys to use um, at, at the time. So you just got to problem solve and find a way, and uh, yeah, you know, make, make it work so you get the outcomes that that you need. Which at the end of the day, was scouting reports for the players.
0: And look, CJ Bruton probably for me one of you know one of my favorite Australian imports that were part of the, of the Breakers dynasty, or well, where we started off in terms of when they won their championships. Um, man, you know, definitely
1: remember him. He's oh, he's a legend. He's a legend of the game, and this is why he is. He uh, when we were in Brisbane, uh, we were roommates for the three years we were together there as, as assistants to Andre and see, You know, he he can't go anywhere without finding an autograph, taking a photo, talking to somebody, yeah. um, amazing human being. And he uh, had like for the, I mean, he played as a pro for 20 years. So he, I can't even imagine how many video scouting sessions through, you know, there would have been thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of scouting that he sat down there as a player and watched. But when it comes to being a coach now and actually, you know, creating those um, video scouts and stuff, he was starting from ground zero and what makes him brilliant is he, he's like i got to know this stuff and i want to be great at it so you know he'd he'd bring his um his iPad to the office and we'd spend time all, all the time just sitting there just little shortcuts bit by bit you know like training training him up um, you know so he could he could be good, great at that park as part of coaching that happened to be part of the job and and he just he just did not want to be bad in that area um, of the job so i think that's what makes him special he's got so much talent but um, you know, it's like a player that's maybe got their, got a weak handle or, you know, they've got an area of their game that they're not strong at. Like, he just puts the work in. So, you know, and that's with a wife and a big family. So he's, a, he's an amazing human being. And that's I guess that's why he's so successful.
0: Okay, your time with the Boomers, um, obviously. Um, uh, well, we, we speak about the the Breakers' success and where it began. Uh, Andre Lamanis had a massive um, input into that that well with their success we well, can going to some of those championships in the rafters for the breakers so your your relationship with andre and with
1: the boomers what was it like for you awesome he's a mentor for me he's a great human being um he's been through it all you know made mistakes and um had lots of success uh fun, funnily enough i think what's the stadium now called is it event Find or something um where the auckland team plays but you, i just know it as nsac i hate that stadium because uh, i lost two nbl championships on that court um <laughs> But um, I remember we were actually in the stadium. Dre was coaching the breakers and he ran past one day in the, in the back of the house and I was we'd just arrived. We'd just driven out to the game and got there and he ran past and he stopped and he turned back around and came up, hey, Mick, and I was like, how are you going? And he goes, oh, I forgot to ring you. Um, I'm interviewing for the Boomers next week and <laughs> I've got a spot on the roster for you, on the coaching staff for you. Are you in? <laughs> I guess I've got to send you the info, but I just wanted to, run i just want to make sure that you're okay and i was like oh just totally i thought he was trying to put us off our game or something i was like wow so anyway <laughs> that's how i got involved but i did know him from back in townsville he was an assistant coach for the townsville crocs for a long long time um and uh he had, he was running uh the sharp start academy which was like for their kind of high school high school leaving athletes transitioning into the um, into the nbl so you know, we did a little bit of work together there. They led it and I sort of, the job that I was doing at the time um, kind of overlapped. So we collaborated there, um, got to know him pretty well. And I tried to get on his staff when he first got the the breakers job. Like I applied for that job, but he, um, I think I remember who he went with. I think it was John Dodge maybe and, and someone else, but yeah. So we'd kind of known of each other, but yeah, just, I guess, through the league and through, I actually volunteered one time I was coaching the Emerging Boomers, which is like a, I think in New Zealand we call it the, the Tall Black Select team that goes to China. Yeah. Um, so I was coaching the emerging boomers team and Brett Brown was the head coach at the time, but he was, he was in the NBA uh, with the Spurs and, and uh, uh, Andre was running the camp. I think it was a camp in late May for the boomers while, um, while Brett was still caught up and Brett's video guy was caught up as well. So, um, you know, I volunteered. I, I took some time to go over there and basically was the video guy for the boomers uh, before the London Olympics. Um, and that kind of led to coming back the following year, the Olympic year, and I did the same thing, volunteered again as as the video video guy for the Boomers. So I guess when Andre um, got the head coaching job of the Boomers in two thousand and thirteen, I guess he'd seen seen a lot of work by that stage. And you know, I think in that space, you just go with people that that you trust and, and people that have the right skills and are talented. So that's how I kind of first got got involved. And you know, there's been a bit of a common theme there with most. Most of the coaching jobs that I've got that have ended up being paid have come from, you know, a fair bit of work, either, you know, in a voluntary capacity. Um, um, yeah, so I think that's, a, that's an important part, important part of your development is how much time you invest um, on, on the deck, like being a volunteer in a program or just the research that you might do online or getting in a qualification or whatever that looks like. But, yeah, investing in your, investing in your craft and your own development so you get better.
0: Absolutely, that's um. I couldn't say you you, you hit the hammer on the nail like it's it's all about you know you got to show your wares sometimes and you know they got you know some people might take a punt on people and all that sort of stuff but you got to put their groundwork in and their grafting work in regards to obviously well player development you can't you can't go into an Iverson crossover without doing the fundamental pounder ball as as such but um yeah so yeah you know, like the um talking about the environments that um, Andre Lamanis puts into play, like his culture reading, because well, I'm, I'm very good friends with Paul Hinati, and obviously they've got a great um, relationship. And to me, both those who know how to grow cultures within their, their groups. Can you, can you bring that into into light and for this episode?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like Paulie's, like um, one of the, like as a coach and as a as a person, like I just respect him. I hate the fact that he was on the Breakers team that won the championship, but anyway. Um, but um, both those coaches, and I guess probably yeah, Dre. When Dre coached Paulie at the um, at the Breakers, um, that's probably where it planted that seed. But I think Paulie's kind of just wired that that way anyway. Um, how they approach the whole thing, they surround themselves with talented people, but talented people that are in it for the right reasons. So, you know, people that put the team first. So there's a famous, you know, anyone that's a 1990s um, NBA fan, um, you know, knows the whole uh, Bulls dynasty and and Luke Longley, uh, the big seven foot Australian that, that was a part of three of those championships. Luke had, Luke had grown up around the boomers. That was, you know, he was part of the boomers before he was an NBL player and, uh, and NBA and college player. So, Luke was a pivotal part to Andre's, I guess, plan and vision around culture, and and a big part of Aaron Baines's growth. And I think anyone that's seen um, Luke's actually got a, a, t- a little tele series that came out, um, I think on the ABC or something, but it'd be available online. Just about his part, um, you know, through the whole his his career and stuff. But Luke was great about understanding, like the pulse of the playing group and the locker room and, and the staff. And, you know, do you need to train more? Do you need to have a day off? Do you need to just go out, have a few, have a few beers? And just about the senior men's team, but, you know, have a few beers and let your hair down. And uh, do you need to have some honest conversations? Like he had a great ability to understand, you know, where there were some potential red flags or if things weren't quite right. And Andre's brilliance is he was aware that that's essential to a, to a team to do well, but maybe, you know, he's not the best guy for that all the time. And so, you know, he empowered Luke to really drive that part of it. And then we had an absolute legend of uh, the game, a man by the name of Dr. Adrian Hurley, who had either played or coached or assistant coached, uh, spent a lot of time with Lindsay Gaze as an assistant coach and been to nine or 10 Olympic games in some, some way, shape or form. Um, Lindsay was our helicopter. He was our mentor coach for the whole coaching staff, particularly Andre, but um, to make sure the coaching staff functioned well as a as a group. So um, we had Will Weaver who came on board as a, originally just Brett Brown wanted him to get out of the NBA and see international basketball and learn about international basketball and have a bit of a break from that space and, and understand what the Boomers' environment's like because obviously Brett was the, the Boomers' head coach before that and he understood how special... That was So um, Dre was just great at putting, you know, like a diverse group of staff together that had all different skills, but at the end of the day, we're all in it for the right reasons and they put the team first. And then he was always big on the playing group having a strong voice. So, you know, he had no problems with, you know, I guess, sharing stuff through the playing group that he thought, you know, they needed to know. For them to be able to make you know make decisions or be part of the decision making process, so um, he really empowered um, you know the playing group. Um, people that are kind of around it do understand. You know, Paddy Mills, um, who's a brilliant, amazing person, um, strong, strong minded, and stuff. And and you know, him and Dre probably didn't get off to a great start, but um, I think there was some common ground met there. Using you know Luke Longley and using Matt Delavadova and other people because they bought into Andre's belief on how the culture needed to be, then you know other players like Andrew Boger was a massive part of um, you know making sure that the I guess the locker room were on the same page. So you know, and I think Paulie has Paulie's a great tactical coach, really clever X's and O's, but he's just got this manner and just this, this ability to. You know, just be present with players and understand what the players need, but firm and strong, and, and leads inspirationally. So, yeah, got a lot of time for for both both those guys because they're really from people first, but then all the technical, tactical stuff as well. They're they're really cutting edge.
0: Look, because culture is massive. It's a massive of any game teams. It's a, it's a make or break within in the teams. If the culture's not right, then you know you know what's going to happen. But the culture is right. And if the team was not really talented as much, then you know the season or whatever campaign you're amongst, it just feels that much more better when the culture has been set properly and it's been driven quite hard, within the coach and the players as well.
1: Yeah, look, I've, I've been in te- I've been in a team that won a national championship back in Australia, like an underage championship. You know, we had a lot of talent. It wasn't an enjoyable experience um, when you look back on it. Winning was great, um, like a like a short term sort of fix and. And that, but the the failings of truly connecting with the playing group and the players really caring about each other and making sacrifices or um, putting ego aside like that particular group that was just challenging. We were really talented, and um, there was a lot of time spent through the campaign on stuff that probably in other teams you take it for granted if you've got a really good group of, of players. You know, and I've been a, a team that just unfortunately lost a you know a gut-wrenching grand final it was a great grand final national championship game but you know we were just a bunch of riff-raff under talented undersized that no one gave a chance and just had an amazing experience like played well beyond any expectation but just the way players um, you know played for each other and played with pride for the for the jersey was um, was amazing it was a real, other than the other result like you know that's that that is what it is, but it's all the other bits and pieces that you know you remember way more um, about that experience. So well, ideally, you win it all and you have an unbelievable experience as well. But that's sort of the utopian dream, but it, it doesn't always happen that way. So um, having satisfaction through the journey and seeing people grow and connect and and, and build relationships and improve, um, you know that that far outweighs uh, the trophy cabinet.
0: Okay, before we get into you, when your time to jump over to over the ditch and make your way over to New Zealand, uh, now the differences between New Zealand and Australia in regards to the game of basketball, mentally wise. Um, now, I, I like for us, uh, there's obviously that Trans Tasman rivalry, but I believe you know New Zealanders respect in terms of you know what the basketball brands, are, but uh, you know how. You know, Australians are wide within the game of basketball, and obviously talented too. So, from from you, coach, what is the difference that you have observed? Are the key differences between New Zealand and Australia style of play?
1: Um, I think if you start with the the people, I'm not, and again, I'm no expert. I've only been here for t- two or three years, so I'm learning every day um, yeah. about it. But I think the observations in my experience now being in the trenches with a whole bunch of people and coaching enough games and and that is that with from the difference in sort of the game style and that the it starts with the people. And I think generally New Zealanders are quite humble people. And you know, with that um is a strength, absolutely. But I think, you know, from what I what I can take is, you know, Aussies we come across as a little bit more brash generally and a little bit more confident. And then, you know, then the next level is is obviously the way we would perceive um, you know Americans if we want if we wanted to stereo stereotype that there is even more confidence and sort of bravado within that um, within that society. So I don't think too many people would argue differently to that. Now every individual person are, is who they are and, and based on their experiences so the New Zealanders that I've worked with with the Canterbury Rams and the mainland Eagles Academy and, and you know the local, um, coaching group, the parallels between New Zealand and Australia are like identical. You can't separate the passion for, you know, loving the game or loving to, you know, there's so many coaches here in the Canterbury region that just love coaching, you know, high school basketball or junior basketball because they they love helping and making a difference in the lives of, you know, of young, young players. So um, I think that part's the same. Style of play is uh, is interesting because there's definitely you know there's that national coaches conference which I've been to the last two years now and sort of just been involved in that presented some stuff at that as well and there's definitely kind of a mixed vibe in that that group which is like you know 50 are the most probably kind of significant coaches in New Zealand um, you know people that are national coaches or they run the you know, successful school programs or national junior teams or NBL teams. So, you know, quite a good cross-section of coaches. And there's, I guess, this tug of war between not resenting Australians or the Australian way, but um, there's this thing about New Zealand has its own identity and it can play its own version of the game and its own way of the game. And there's a way to do it that um, can be better than the way the Australians do it. But there's also common sense says that, you know, Australia does have a massive population, um, you know, has a lot of coaches, has a good infrastructure there, is another Commonwealth country. And you'll find a lot of the Commonwealth countries kind of copy off each other. Like we, we take a lot from Canada, you know, and particularly when it comes to sports science and and that. So I think it's information sharing and it makes sense to, to take whatever you can from the Australian way. Um, but at the end of the day, take that and figure out like, what can you use? What do you dump? And, you know, how does it help develop, you know, the New Zealand way or the Kiwi way of playing basketball? And that that's probably the thing that is different in so many ways. And it's different from association to association. Uh, and I can only use, and I don't want to keep talking about Australia, but I can only use an example. Like when I came through the juniors, when you played, Uh, Sorry, coach. like junior rep teams. The Gold Coast style of play, was like this, they never had many big players. It was always like a lot of guards, free-flowing, up and down, fast-paced, and that was kind of their style. And then when you got to a team like the Brisbane team, they were always very methodical, almost like Ivy League, had a lot of bigger bodies and played kind of power basketball. Um, Townsville was the same. And then so even within like New Zealand, the way people play basketball in Wellington might be different to Hawkes Bay, might be different to Southland, and so on and so forth. So regionally, because of culture and because of coaches and that, like the style can be different, but it doesn't mean it can't be kind of successful or be good for the long-term development of players. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing at the moment is the passion of the tribalism of sports. You know, like you know, the the competition between the rugby franchises and and, and sport and basketball franchises is so competitive, but you don't want the competitiveness of that to get in the way of actually making some better decisions around how the governance of the sport and the direction of the sport can head when it comes to um, the way we should be supporting the development of our athletes and, and our coaches and, um, and officials. And I think that's the bit, the alignment, particularly in our coaching space, mm-hmm. um, needs a lot of, lot of work because the better the coaches are, the more professional we are, the clearer direction we have. Um, that's only going to help um, help the development of players.
0: Absolutely. All right, coach. Now let's let let's dig um, into some offense. Uh, in a previous um, podcast, you did you did a a um, you spoke about your defensive tactics and style. Um, but let's talk about offense because offense because there's so much moving parts with an offense and and teaching points. So. Uh, yeah, so offense, where do you feel it's going nowadays? Uh
1: it's a, it's evolving um and a, it, it's evolving but it's also revisiting you know things that have been successful in the past um but you know rebranding it or repackaging things you know the way Miami played with that sort of undersized free flowing motion read and react like whatever you want to call it in the 1980s it was Bobby Bobby Knight's motion offense that um, you know had a massive impact around the world on how the game was played and I apologize because i 'm just not old enough. there may have been a version before that, but yeah. I, I do remember that and then um, you know read and react became a thing with Rick Talbot that got a lot of a lot of traction um, maybe a decade decade ago so you know now we talk about triggers you know how do you create you know small advantages and and then turn them into big advantages so I think the semantics of like what something is labeled or how it's sold or how it's packaged. That's the stuff that's changing all the time. But I think that's just because as a function of society, we're a consumer society and people are always looking and conscious of what's the latest thing, you know, who would have thought, you know, certain um, like Puma or New Balance or any kind of brands like that would you know be even close to trendy again uh like yeah, thing, thing, things things evolve very very quickly it takes one you know nba player to 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 sign and get their their big endorsement and and you know push a certain product and um you know under armor no one would have ever thought under armor would have got to the heights it got to so the sport itself because it has that um that street kind of Backyard culture you can go play on a council park from white man can 't jump the movie back in the day to the n1 movement like there's always been like different parts of the game that make up basketball and from the really traditional like structured indoor version to what we 're seeing now with 3x3 being an Olympic sport so because the game so evolving all the time with with the labels that are used and um, you know, so many careers in it. Like, who would have thought there would have been so many skills coaches now? Like 20 years ago, it was just a shooting coach. You know, people were teaching Shaq how to shoot free throws and earning a lot of money. You know, now there's this massive massive market in itself to be a skills coach. And there's actually a pathway now where you don't even need to coach a team um, if you want to go from a skills coach all the way through a skills coach pathway and maybe end up working with an NBA team because you're just exceptional at coaching skills so I think the industry has broadened and I think there's a lot of different um, ways to get involved in the game and with those moving parts has become a real challenge around Well, how now do you coach a team and have an offensive philosophy um, and get um, I guess uh, you know you, you help get your group of players to buy into a way of basketball where they feel like they're valued their strengths are being utilized and um, they continue to get better and the team successful. And so I think that's the biggest challenge that we all have as coaches at the moment is there's so many things being put, like kids learn different ways now with you know like devices and, and all that stuff. As a coach, you, you've got to be aware of that and maximize that. Uh, kids have shorter attention spans. So you've got to, you know, the way you teach and the way you deliver, there's a lot more like coaching on the run and um, experimental learning, like, you know, allow kids to kind of fail in a safe way and let them play small-sided games and all the stuff that um, Chris Oliver does with Alex Sarama and Basketball Immersion. There, there, there's that whole space um, to, to learn from. So I think as a coach, it's, it's being across those different movements, but at the end of the day, simplifying it down and figuring out the, what's the program you're running, what are the age group of athletes that you've got, and what are the age and stage like appropriate skills, foundation skills that I guess you should be prioritizing teaching uh, those players. So whether you've got them for just a season that three months or a season's at eight months at the end of the day, it's still only a very small period of time in, in their lives um, when it comes to how long they may play basketball for. And, and so I guess it's a, it's a long there's a lot going on there, so that's I guess why the answer' so long before you even get to what what do you run? what do you actually teach and what do you run? Um, so I think it's understanding the kind of the global environment first, be aware of it um, then understand I guess exactly like the role that you're playing, so whether that's the school team or whatever but understand I guess the contract or the agreement or the program that you're running and then when you understand that start with the people and and figure out. Um, you know, the best way to connect with each of the, I guess, the people that are in your program so you can build trust and you can understand their strengths and skills and how they learn. And then from there you can start putting in your, your technical and tactical part of it. That's the fun part that, you know, I love it. You know, whatever it is watching, um, on, um, Instagram, like slapping glass or basketball immersion stuff. There's so many cool things out there, all the the different trainers that are out there, drew handling stuff. And, um, Jordan Lawley stuff, like there's, there's tons out there. So like that bit's the easy fun bit because you're motivated as a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, but but how you apply that into a team context? Because at the end of the day, although individuals want to get better, it's not a one-on-one game. It's a five-on-five game, or it's a three x three game. So you do rely on other people for you to be successful. And um, I think culturally, the US clearly um, struggle in that space because it's just a different kind of psyche in that society. It's a, you know, it's a capitalist society. That's all about, you know, the person and the individual and their brand and, you know, getting in now with all these different academies and and trying to get into the NBA. There's so much individually based stuff, um, Mm -hmm. but it's a team sport and they're starting to learn now that, you know, if you don't coach the soft skills and how a person can work with other people, um, you know, they're kind of set up for failure and we've seen that with, um, you know, a lot of individual players that are coming in and, and maybe not fulfilling the hype, I guess, that's been put put around them when they've got to the NBA um, or higher levels because they just don't have the the essential ingredients that are needed to function in a team sport. So, So that's all the... The environmental, organisational, and um, and per, uh, personable stuff, but um, we can take a break and I can talk a little bit more about the specific uh, x's and o's if you want. Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: Because um, to to insert a, um, a free flowing offense like like the read and react doesn't happen overnight. Like you know, like x's and o's, you can teach like a motion set and you know run that for your whole entire program and see how you go. But man, the, the intricacies of running a um, a read and react it takes a lot of time a lot of effort a lot of ins- got to sink in with your I mean, your teammates and your players um, which is yeah which can work well or it could
1: really burn you yeah I think um, it's that's an interesting thing because I mean there's look there's a there's a bunch of different ways that you can um, play the game and that's shown you know you, you take you take any I mean the, the New Zealand NBL like there's there's lots of different versions of the game um you go Wellington last year were unbelievable. You know, the, the results showed it and, you know, their shot chart and their analytics showed it. And I guess Zico's time he spent with Houston um, and the influence that that organization had on his own, I guess, learnings as a coach. Uh, and then he came back and I, I'll i paraphrase him, but I, I don't understand all those crazy words he throws out there sometimes. But <laughs> at the end of the day, he he referenced something about, you know, pulling apart the the car, the motor of the car, and then basically re, rebuilding it. So Um, he's a smart enough guy to go I really like that but I actually need to unpack a little bit and work out what's going to work for us and um, Dion Proust was outstanding last year was was an unbelievable pick and roll player and then Zico had the talent now whether he recruited that talent or whether that was the talent that he had and um, he kind of you know, delivered a game plan that suited that talent, which is, I believe, what you know what he did. Oh, these are the guys I got. This is what I know they can do well, and so you know we'll run stuff according to that group. So, with my own beliefs, I think um, the Rams, the Rams team, again, you know, analytically, offensively, you know, we were pretty hit and miss last year, uh, and again, I'm not going to make excuses, but you know, when you just have different players in and out all the time, or the team that ends up taking the court. Um, is not, at the end of the day, the team that you, you believe you were going to have you're kind of playing catch-up. So um, part of the broader, I guess, mission of the Rams was all of the work to help these young players get to get to college and get to the Australian NBL. And so because of that charter, I really felt that instead of just teaching these guys, you know, a few sets, set plays, and we just, you know, live, live in that little space, there was a broader obligation to teach you know like the Tom Webleys who's at Hartford and we had Ben Carlisle Smith go over and spend a season um, uh, with William tribe Simmons um, Mason Whitakers now at American University we've got a couple other kids coming through the program that will go to college college next year but um, you know it's teaching them how to play the game and so we looked at what's the best platform to teach players to you know, understand different ways of floor spacing, and I guess if you look at a, if you look at a pie and you cut the pie graph up,
0: mm-hmm.
1: all right. Pick and roll, we know, is a really prevalent part of the game now. So yep, we absolutely we're gonna to have to guard it. But offensively, we're gonna to have to know, you know, have a strategy around how we um, attack different coverages. But there's pick and roll play. Uh, how do players within the spacing on the court can they be impactful? finding space and creating it can they do it can they make and generate scores and advantages or triggers of cuts uh, and can they use screens away from the ball so when you kind of break down all these different parts of the game it's like well we need to look at the way we're playing the game that has a good balance of those things so when a player moves on to an Australian NBL team and the coach you know is a little bit more up and down and early you know early early ball screen stuff then that player's adaptable and can fit in um, if they're able to go to a college and they play in a coach that's really, really set orientated, um, you know, they, they, I guess, have the discipline and the patience to understand that they could be in a system that's um, just a couple of sets. But within those, every single individual action within the set, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of reads underlying that. So if you want to be exceptional at running sets or you want to be a, a, a really good team, that can play a bit more free-flowing and play off some some cues or triggers or early attacks or whatever you want to call it. Um, to me, it's still actually quite a significant amount of learning because every decision that's made by one player has that domino effect to the next player and the next player. So whether it's in a structured offense or with a bit more freedom. So um, I think both are challenging. I think that's a bit of a myth that if we just teach – teach kids some sets or put some basic sets in they'll be a lot more comfortable um, what they will be comfortable with is running a structured pattern and not necessarily actually understanding the game itself and and how to make you know reads and the freedom of making reads within that structure it ends up being quite you know quite a deliberate deliberate thing so yeah
0: yeah, yeah it's like uh, my observation was from things the things a previous uh, episode with uh, Man, you know, quite well, Tyler Hunt, just all around watching the um, the evolution of the game with regards to freedom, as you said, and in guys just you know feeling out and just pretty much utilizing their own personal uh, offensive skill sets just to kind of make the correct shots, or if this is not my shot here, make the extra
1: pass, make it quick. But the decision making was was fast and quick. Yeah, yeah, no, there's definitely. Um... Oh, I can't even. Remember. There was an analytical report on this um, Golden State Warriors, right? From um, maybe two, two or three years ago. It was one of their championship years where they um, they had the the ball in hands per per second, like how long each play had the ball in hand. And you know they were, and I can't remember. I might be misquoting here, but they were like a couple of tenths of a second quicker than almost any any other team. So they obviously were very conditioned with the way they played to get that thing moving like they made decisions quickly. So all of, all of that is I guess put together in a way that spacing is important because you need space to make a play. whether that's the player with the ball or a player without the ball, players need to understand, you know how to space on the floor, and so I think you still need a basic framework. And and again, that's my been my approach. Uh, whether it's individual skill development, small group workouts, or coaching the team, is always referencing. I guess what's the outcome we want on this possession, and how do we how do we get there? So the thing that and I know like with Zico's team, I think uh, Houston were the lowest mid-range percentage attempts in the entire league, he absolutely hung his head on that and believed in that. And you look at their shot chart, they didn't take uh, mid-ranges unless it was absolutely uh, essential. Now, they won the New Zealand League last year, but there's been plenty of other teams that have played completely different and and won other leagues as well. So there are lots of different ways that you can play the game. And I think when it's when it's teaching, you need to start with like, the, the court's the court dimensions stay the same and the hoop stays right we know that it doesn't move so um you know whether you want to get into geometry of uh you know orientating when you talk about angles or whether you want to talk about the physics of uh you know shooting a basketball when you get to the end of it the the end of the day there is a lot of science behind and, and all the analytics will will support that um all the video technology and the stuff that's available now that coaches can get online and and study some of the resources that um, around the NBA or or, or top level leagues that they pump out. The thing about your philosophy as a coach is the players that you're coaching need to have a good understanding of what you're trying to achieve each offensive possession. And so that often gets referenced back to shot selection, right? Like what's the shot we're trying to generate? Um, Taking care of the basketball is a, a, a critical one, but how can you play with freedom and, be able to make mistakes and be prepared to give it a go. And so I think, you know, like I know we do it um, and and I've been around other teams where you actually break down turnovers, you know, into categories of like, you know, that one's a careless one and we need to address that. But, you know, if you're trying to, um, you know, hit a player on a backdoor cut and you happen to pass it, you know, a split second late or a little bit too high, if the decision was the right decision at the time and you went to execute... The, the pass, but the execution failed. That's the stuff that, that's why you practice. So, but you praise that it was the right decision. So I think coaching has shifted. Um, more weight has been put now on the decision-making part of running your offense. And even coaches that run a bit of structure, they'll, they'll give within that structure more freedom now to, you know, break out of a play like, you know, reject a screen as opposed to using it, um, screen a slip, like all of that sort of stuff. There's a lot of false motion stuff as well um, in, in a lot of offenses. So some of that's deliberate to, to distort the defenses or disrupt coverages. But the um, I guess like the decision-making has become a lot more of a premium part of a coach's tool bag that as a coach, you got to go, well, how do I coach decision-making? And, you know, that's really important because it's not so much what you know you see in your head it's through the the lens of the athlete's eyes and so you know there's lots of strategies through questioning through you know quick video peer feedback there's lots of ways to now you know support decision making but with decision making comes mistakes and the game can be a little bit messy at times particularly with younger kids if you're allowing them the freedom to you know to make decisions and then it's more about hey What did you see then, and do you think that was the best decision at that time? And then on the flip side of that, the games become so more advanced in teaching micro skills. You know, the breakdown of footwork, in particular, um, how you use your hands when you catch a basketball, whether you're catching it to shoot, catching it to rip it, stampede catches. Like, I think the the games got a lot savvier and and a lot more detailed now. So it's trying to find like a balance between the decision-making within the, the court spacing that you have and the common actions versus, and, and also, you know, the micro skills that are needed to execute. And the thing that underpins a lot of that is communication, both both visually and, um, uh, sorry, verbally and, and nonverbal um, communication because I think, you know, when we teach kids, I always have that say is that, you know, your visual target yeah, that's, that's talking with your hands and talking with your body to, to, your, to your teammates to say, hey, I want the ball. But you might be moving and the passer needs to know exactly when to deliver it. So, you know, talk equals timing. So between giving visual targets and then communicating, that's how you can have precision passing on time and on target. Um, you know, that's not my saying. I can't remember who I stole that from, but I think it's just a great way of putting it. So that's how you put it all together, the communication, the decision. Um, uh, that 's being communicated and then the execution of the micro skill so um, there's there 's a lot there there's, there really is a lot there, so I think actually having a couple of basic simple patterns of movement um, is a pretty good way to approach to approach the game as a teaching tool now
0: mm. now awesome, great um content amongst there, coach and yeah and we 're talking about Zika Coronel, man, I think the dude 's got his own sort of basketball language and um <laughs> Yeah. we're like what did he just what is, what is it what we're we talking about here and just yeah just it's like alien but it's, it's his basketball language which which is beautiful in a sense because man he's yeah, their brain is somewhere else
1: <laughs> oh absolutely and look uh fitch and i we, we did a, a you know michael fitchett from from the giants one of the tall black assistants we kind of kind of joke about it a little bit we were presenting at the national coaches conference and we are kind of a little bit vanilla in our presentation <laughs> or the terminology that we we're using but you know, Zico got up there and started talking about attacking the femoral head of you know, and all these sort of cool terms and that. That had the the audience in in awe. But yeah, like each to their own. whichever that's his way. And Ross McMaines is a really yeah. energetic and charismatic presenter, and you know, you're on the edge of your seat with his infectious energy. But I guess at the end of the day, the takeaway is what have I learned and how do I apply it, yeah. uh, and what do I want to apply out of out of that content. And I think part of your journey when you're you're kind of accumulating all this knowledge is you just want to jump in there with excitement and uh, it's like going to a conference. You go to a conference at work and you feel so motivated and you start trying to do all this sort of stuff. But um, I think the real art is, uh, and I say this to, um, uh, we've got a really good skills coach that's worked with us at the Rams um, and, and and actually another coach, George Robinson, who's now, I want to give him a little, little bit of love. He's uh, he's moved on to the Brisbane Bullets in a, in a coaching role there. Um, You talk about guys that have volunteered really hard, George and, and Adam, um, you know, have really worked their craft. And one of the things I'll say to Adam is he's a, he's a big Drew Hanlon guy um, spent some time there with Drew's program in the States. And I think the, the micro skills fine, like teaching a kid five different way, five different HESI moves or, um, you know, all the different types of um, language now that's used around, you know, drops and, you know, pull dribbles and, and, and that, that's fine. But, it's not a matter of, like, get the kid in front of an Instagram um, post seeing uh, Kevin Durant execute that one move in a game and then the skills trainer talking about it. That's only actually showing that skill just in that game. As coaches, if they're in a team environment, the skills coach's job will what can separate them from others if they can explain the context and the build-up of when you would apply that. So... You know, I'd say that um, to Adam, like, you know, we've got these kind of um, floor spacing and basic movements within our attack offense for the Rams. Where does that one particular move fit in in the game? Like, what's the context around that? And I think that's the important part is you've always got to glue the, you know, the micro skill back into the bigger picture. Um, And the bigger picture is the team component of it, not just the player finishing the move, move themselves. And that's a big thing I see now. Um, with so many people teaching lots of different little skills that they've cut and pasted off the internet, which is nothing wrong with that. Um, just making sure that they loop it back into uh, the big picture stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, look, and you, can, you can do all the massive breakdown like the James Harden dribble, you know, rock them to sleep. Right <laughs> in front of you. But yeah, I mean, simple does it sometimes. You know, it's a catch, rip, a tick, get to the room and just got to finish because you, you know, yeah, it's awesome that you use a lot of the information to beat the player in front of you. But there's also a help side that's behind you and then you got to finish the shot.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, bull. And, um, no, I mean, just, again, this is gone off off track, but, you know, I think a yeah, common yeah. thing now is, um, like, scoring systems at training. You know, we'll still have games where it's twos and threes and you just play a normal game, but, you know, with constraint-based games and, you know, I call it more incentivized um, small, you know, if you're doing small-sided drills or games, like how can you incentivize the drill to reward the behaviors that, you want or the shots that you want to try and generate. So, and I know a lot of coaches are, are in this space now. So obviously the best thing that you can do is, is make a open shot, a great shot, you know, dunk the thing, get foul, get to the foul line, shoot a corner three, shoot a wide open jump shot. Um, so we know all the analytics behind, you know, points per possession and what good shots are. But when you're doing your drills, you know, kids aren't going to make, shots at a high, high level all the time or even, you know, professional players aren't because, you know, they're guarded by an equally good player on the other side of the ball. So how can you still have scoring systems that reward the, um, you know, the type of shots or the type of actions? So, um, you know, we've manipulated the way we, you know, if I say to our team, hey, we're going to do style of play scoring now, you know, after two training sessions, they know exactly what that means. And then from there we can then add today it's style of play scoring, plus it's a bonus point for a screen assist um so i think it's um it's a good way to approach because kids are smart like they're if you just give them you know a little bit of information and let them go out there and explore um you know you, you'll get enough out of your team of 10 or team of eight or however many you got in the court you, you'll get the smarter ones figure it out and they'll hopefully if you've got a good culture they'll help some of the other kids that might be struggling to pick that up. And that's when you're in a really good space of positive learning environments when, uh, when kids are helping each other to get, combat, uh, get better um, at their comprehension of what you're trying to do.
0: Um, I've got a whole list of stuff that we didn't cover <laughs> this episode, mate. So. I'm sorry,
1: man. My answers are too long. I'm a talker. I love to kind of like talk in stories. Um, probably being around CJ too long uh, has, has rubbed off. <laughs> no
0: absolutely well this is, it's an opportunity to get you back on another episode coach um because yeah there's still a whole lot of things we want to cover off obviously your time within the, um the coaching with the rams um you know 2019 coach of the year yeah. um and then shifting into the Hawks so um yeah if we could possibly get you into another episode because obviously next play solutions you know mainland eagles um just going off my notes um uh, but yes um coach this has been an
1: awesome episode Well, let's we'll get you in another time Absolutely. Um, thanks for having me, and yeah, I'm uh, more than happy to come back when uh, when it suits you. No problem. Thank you very much, and have a good night. Thank you. Whoa, 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 whoa,
0: whoa! It's full time. Thank you very much for taking your time out with us here at Showtime in NZ hopefully you enjoy the podcast see you next time we'd like to actually let you know we are on facebook and instagram we have a social media platform jump in engage If you have highlights or news you like to share around new zealand basketball or even across the world dm or pm us we'll do our best to represent you and you can represent us copying the merch help build our brand so we can keep on the grind and making sure that we are still balling all levels until next time peace